Welcome to an oxygen-deprived King of the Ride podcast, recorded 10,000 feet above sea level. Our guest today, Rebecca Rush, friend and mentor of mine. This setting was fitting that we finally had time to connect and record a conversation in person as this took place in Leadville, Colorado. Now, I don't know how you've stumbled on this podcast if you don't know who Rebecca Rush is, but for anyone who needs a refresher, as her bio reads, Rebecca Rush is an American ultra-endurance pro athlete, a world champion, author, entrepreneur, Emmy winner, and motivational speaker whose career has spanned numerous adventure sports, including rock climbing, expedition racing, whitewater rafting, cross-country skiing, and mountain biking. A four-time Dirty Kansas champion, a four-time Leadville champion, a trendsetter living out of her Ford Bronco decades before van life was fashionable, a friend and inspiration to countless individuals. I am thrilled with this conversation with so many nuggets of inspiration or heroic, humble anecdotes or even tear-jerking stories. I know you're going to dig it too. I'll point out that we accomplished about 10 minutes of fantastic conversation that we thought was being recorded before I realized the machinery was busted and said, no card in system, even though it was in fact in and supposedly operational. Alas, disaster averted, we rebooted and got back at it. A little scene setting. Host housing is a key part of the Leadville community, being such an isolated part of the country but becoming home to thousands of individuals on race weekend, it is mandatory that one becomes part of the community, is in the community, rather than operating at arm's distance from it. So Rebecca is a very good friend and host Kathy was kind enough to let us record on her back patio. Hence all of the real world noises you might hear in the background, mountain town dogs, trains driving by, revving cars, and so forth. Kathy is one of the soon to be acknowledged audience members as we get this recording underway. The other being a Red Bull van driver, Chris, who is deep into a book about a dozen feet away. Anyway, Laura and I are still in skyscraping Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Leadville was just yesterday where I am pleased to have scratched 10 minutes off my previous time. Oddly enough, my now sub seven hour finishing time put me two spots back into 13th place. Truth be told, I am quite happy with that. The lead-up to Leadville has been the atypical one. Running non-stop events throughout the summer, a quick trip to Iceland, hosting Rooted Vermont just last weekend, and a last-minute arrival to Colorado. But that should put me in a very good place for this Sunday's SBT GRVL Steamboat Gravel. Looking forward to that one. With a little time to spare, Laura and I are now soaking in a little R&R in Crested Butte. It is rare that we have a few days without anything formal on the calendar, so we are taking time to explore a new stunning spot. Really excited to be here in CB. But enough about me, enough about us. It is time for the show. Ladies and gentlemen, next up in King of the Ride podcast, the queen of pain, Rebecca Rush. Now that we have figured out how to use this recording device, I appreciate you taking the time, your third interview of the day. Is that correct? Yeah, it's an endurance event here. 
doing yeah, interviews and podcasts. Here in Leadville, it's an endurance event. We have, I think we can say one and a half people in audience. Um, <laughs> Who's the half person? The I think if you're in a van 20 feet away with okay. only your foot showing, you count as a half an audience member. It was Chris, is that right? Chris, yeah. Chris, if you have questions from the audience, please holler them our way. If you have any questions from the audience, please... Re- yeah. Great. <laughs> broccoli. The question was, what does the inside of the van smell like? And the answer is broccoli. Outstanding. So, here in Leadville, we will talk about Leadville, of which you are a legend. However, I want to talk about how we first met. Rebecca Rush, do you remember how we first met? <laughs> I just remember knowing that like some roadie dude was going to come hang out with me and uh, you know, I didn't I don't know. I haven't met I, I you're the first roadie I met that I liked. We'll just put it that way. Oh man. That is the highest praise that I've ever received. Well, but I came in thinking I was thinking, you know, I had a stereotype thinking yeah, I wasn't going to like you. Stereotypes are are things, and, and I'm glad that mine wasn't necessarily entirely true because I believe we met for the first time at a dive bar of sorts, South by Southwest, 2016, when you said, hey, Rody, when are you coming to Dirty Kansas? And then you said, what on earth are you doing with your life? Where I had this wonderful answer of, I had recently retired from professional bike racing and I have a handful of sponsors who are interested in, in, in working with me and vice versa, uh, to help perpetuate their message of bikes are awesome. And I'm doing some camps and I'm leading some events. And then you're like, yeah, but what are you doing with your life? And, and that was the first time that I took this, uh, reality check where I had to take a step back and be like, yo, this is, this is not just a, a, a fun and games. This is a real profession. So before you even say anything, I also want to take this quote that you've, you've recently uttered that says, running my business is like a cerebral version of riding the Ho Chi Minh or Iditarod Trail only harder because the path is far less obvious. Don't I worry. I really like the train about background the noise. We That's are you in know. Leadville, you know. <laughs> Pardon the interruption, folks. Ted here explaining that with with the train rolling by and then our friend Christy Moan visiting for a bit. Episode number 29, Christy Moan, event director of Dirty Kanza, that is. The conversation goes off the rails with Rebecca for just a few minutes. That has been deleted here. So let's get back to the show. Detour complete. Yeah, we're back on track here. So... Because I, I, so basically it sounds like you're thanking me for like resurrecting your career. Um, you laid the blueprint for what I'm doing here. If you hadn't gone to gravel, if you hadn't gone to Dirty Kanza and started, you know, racking up the podiums way more than you ever racked up road racing, you know, where would you be now? Well, it's funny when I was driving over here thinking, I was thinking about that, that, that first conversation we, we had where you said, come to gravel, come to DK. And I could have easily laughed at it and said, no, I'm going to go do this, all this other stuff. But I, I wanted to. It had lived in this area of lore in my in my mind. And, yeah, I probably would have a totally different trajectory. And Gravel would be existing and be awesome without me, but 
It's, you were it's one so of the first pro roadies to come over and kind of, and now it sort of has started a thing, a little bit of a wave, but you're, you're one of the first that I know of that, that I was aware of that was like on a pro road team and, mm-hmm. you know, racing, legitimately racing as a road pro. Neil Shirley's got some clothes. That's true. He's, I believe the only person to be on the podium at a national championship of a mountain bike, a maybe cyclocross. It must be cyclocross and a pro road podium. He's a good one. And then he went to, to the DKs and all the fun ones of the world. Anyway, that's not the, the path I want to go. I want to back up to the to the the quote about your your business. Like when someone comes up to you and says, Hi Rebecca Rush, nice to meet you. What do you do? What do you say? Um, it's it, I don't have a really good elevator pitch for what I do. Um, a lot of people, they see the visible racing and they see that, um, and put me in that bucket of, of being a a pro athlete. Um, and a lot of people don't actually think, and they think that that just means you just ride your bike all day long, every day, all day. Um, not even understanding how much it, it really is a entrepreneurial type of a business to manage sponsorships, do all this stuff, keep you, basically keep your job every year. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you could win everything. You could do everything you're asked of, of your job and then, and then some, and then still lose your job. I mean, that's the sort of the nature of the game. And so there's a lot of hustle. And so there are a lot of aspects of my business that people don't always know about, um, such as a book, a document, a documentary film, um, Emmy winning, Emmy award winning documentary film. Um, you know, women's camps I've taught and, you know, articles I've written. I don't have a podcast cause I don't have time for a podcast and I have an event. And so it, it really is multifaceted. Um, but I still, I still first and foremost consider myself an athlete and because all of those other things are built on my love of exploring and adventuring and being outside. So that's a long way of saying, I, I don't know how to describe myself. Um, because I do a lot of different things. And that tweet that you read about the challenge of my business right now, I, I guess I have what's founder syndrome in, in some way of I've created all this really cool stuff and there's all these really great things I want to do, but um, I'm just one person. And so I'm running this multifaceted business without a lot of uh, human resources. Um, and it's super hard. And, you know, from bike racing, you know, to go try ride as fast as you can and win a bike race, that's a very linear path that the, the things you need to do to get there are very clear. You do the training, you do the rest, you do the nutrition, you get the sponsorship, you, you know, do the interviews, you ride your bike and, you know, develop the mindset to win races and you lose some and then you get back and do it again. Um, but being an entrepreneur, um, and running a business, it's not a linear path for me. And it's, it's not as obvious, you know, there's no coach like, you know, like my coach Dean would be like, do these intervals, do this, then this result comes. And mm-hmm. my business and creative writing and just basically it's the thing I've done in my life. That's really frustrating because the harder you try, you, it doesn't necessarily produce results. And so I'm in this phase now where I'm actually, you know, climbing a different type of Everest or riding another type of Ho Chi Minh trail that I don't know how to do yet. And it's exciting because 
in some ways I'm, you know, evolving into like this whole, whatever this next thing is, but it's also super frustrating because everything I've trained for and understood as an athlete, a lot of those, some of those tools are working like perseverance and staying in and getting Mm -hmm. up when you fall down. But a lot of the tools aren't working and the answers are not as, as linear or clear cut. And so I'm really trying to learn right now how to manage a business and how to manage people and making choices. And my biggest problem is I want to say yes to everything because there's all this great stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to make hard, the hard decisions of saying no to some of them. And it's interesting that you're still there. I mean, meaning um, when I first segued, I no longer want to say when I, when I retired from world tour racing and, and you know, segue to what I'm doing now. I was definitely at a yes phase for everything. And then your time and your bandwidth is only so lasting where you got to start saying no. And it's sort of my understanding that all things, and you talk about your business, all things Rebecca Rush. Rush Ventures is the name. Of, it's Rush like Ventures. technically the name of my business. <laughs> is, is, I mean, there, there must be so many things that come at you. Come to this event, come to this come speak here, go, uh, or every one of the ventures that you already have, be it RPI or camps, those are the kind of things that could be a full-fledged job alone, let alone everything else you do, but then they don't exist. They don't stand on their own without, without Rebecca Rush being Rebecca Rush. So at what point do you say no to the opportunities that come your way to say, no, like I don't have the bandwidth to do that because I'm one person overseeing a lot of projects and opportunities? You know, after I came back from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I spent, um, and doing, you know, the biggest, most important ride of my life, really emotional, the longest ride I've ever done. I spent a couple of years of really, really kind of in this dark place of soul searching and, you know, what am I going to do next? How do you top like the most important thing in your life? And, and what does it mean? And so I spent a good couple of years really you know, starting to journal and meditate and think about like the meaning of life, really. It was such a powerful trip for me and really life-changing in so many ways. And I'm still trying to figure that out, but I went through a really long process of what do I stand for and what's important to me. And I was able to actually, you know, it was definitely not easy, but, but sort of articulate and write down kind of some guidelines for myself and what I stand for and, you know, trying to figure out my path. And if anyone, if anyone remembers a paper map and a compass, <laughs> um, I really love navigation and in navigation, there's, there's a term called handrails where you look for, if you're trying to navigate, you know, through terrain, you look for something like a stream that doesn't change or a ridge line that doesn't change and all the navigation in between all those squiggly lines, you may bump around in the middle and not know exactly where you're going, but you stay between your handrails. And so this period after Blood Road, I I sort of developed kind of my core values of, of how my, I looked back of like all the coolest stuff I've done, what was the pattern? Mm-hmm. And tried to look at it and think, well, that worked, that didn't work. And there, there seemed to be a pattern of, of the way I was choosing things, even though I didn't know I was choosing for those reasons, like things that involve, you know, some amount of risk, um, things that involve giving back. Um, following a passion, whether it means living out of my car and not making any money. And, and, and so 
I articulated basically a little, you know, four part equation of, well, if I don't know where I'm going, I have no idea what I'm doing. At least I'm going to use these guidelines to help me choose because they've worked up until now. Mm-hmm. And, and so that process is helping me right now decide what to say no to. And I sort of look at my little checklist of like, okay, Rebecca's private Idaho is an example. It's like, does it meet those criteria that I've set for myself? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to put some of the energy that I have there or I get requests to go do a ride or go do something. Does it meet those things? And, you know, I have to say no to some of them and and decide on the ones that are important. But it took the process of me articulating what I really stand for and what's important to actually develop a little bit of a navigational path. And, you know, I'm 50 now. It took me a long time to sort of figure out what the hell I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I was making those choices even, you know, after college and I was making the, the same choices. I just didn't know why I was making them. And so it's it's been a process now to be like, where do I want this business to go? And what, how do I want to spend the next, you know, Rebecca, you know, version 5.0, 6.0, whatever it's <laughs> yeah. going to be. Yep. Um, so I have a little better path. It doesn't make it any easier. I think some of the most frustrating part for me is I want to do everything. I have all these cool ideas and I have so much energy and passion for stuff. But so I would look at a project I'm doing and because my time and energy is diluted, I can't do it as well as I really want to do it. And so I have to also accept that I'm just one person and I'm doing my best. And, you know, yeah, I haven't written that second book. Yeah, I haven't done this. Yeah, I haven't done that. But it's like, but I've done all this other great stuff and and things happen when the time is right. So, yeah, you are just one person. (laughs) But who is involved in your team? Meaning... Who helps you make decisions? Who who, who uh, is your emotional support? Who do you speak to? I mean, like those handrails, th- that's brilliant. And and they are very um, navigational and helping you guide the next few decisions. I feel like that would be the kind of thing that might take a conversation with somebody else and say, hey, well, you know, what has inspired you? What what are these these navigational tools that have gotten you this far that are going to help you succeed in the next one? The question being, who is your team? Well, there's an emotional support team and then there's a team that I'm starting to build that's working with me, which are great. You know, I love hiring locals. I really try to have, you know, Idaho people on my team. Um, and so I have a staff of, of four right now, which is awesome. It's the, mm-hmm. the most help I've ever had. But it, it adds another layer too of now I'm a manager and now, yeah. you know, people are looking to me and I have to, you know, it's, it's different. Um, so, so, but as far as emotional support, you know, I have a handful of, you know, mentors and people that I go to for emotional support, you know, Kathy's one of them here in Leadville and my sister has, we've gotten a lot closer since I rode the Ho Chi Minh Trail, a few good friends, but Really was honestly the answers though, you can talk to your friends and, and they can listen and lend an ear, but really the answers come from inside you. And a friend of mine said to me at one point, you know, I was talking to her about, you know, I don't know what to do with this or that. And, and she, she just said to me, Rebecca, you have all the answers. You have them already. And it's really the process of, of 
unearthing them and digging them out from wherever they are within you. And that was kind of a looking backwards path that I did is like all the cool stuff I did, like, is there a pattern? And so the answers are really are there, they're in everybody, but sometimes it takes your friend or somebody to be like, Hey, have you thought about this? But none of those friends really said to me, you should do this. They just said, kind of keep digging, keep looking, keep writing stuff down, you know, keep riding your bike. Um, keep doing the things that, that feed your soul. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. That's awesome. Um, one side note for folks who have not seen Blood Road, absolutely go see it. How do they go see it? Uh, bloodroadfilm.com. Um, you can see it on iTunes or Amazon Prime or and actually get a DVD if you still Ooh, have a DVD wow. player from me or <laughs> my website. Um, I have seen it twice. It is incredibly moving. Did you cry? Uh, I definitely did. Yeah. It is, that is a tearjerker. I cry when I watch it. In a happy way, though. Sure. Um, so... I want to say one thing about Blood Road because people, uh, this conversation comes up a lot and they, you know, I went to find my dad and the place where he died and, you know, combine that with my career in this 1200 mile ride. So like a way to connect with him with what I know how to do. And people always say, well, it must've been closure for you. And it's exact opposite. It was a genesis of that ride was like the birth of me understanding my dad, but understanding me. Mm-hmm. And that whole process of like, what do I really stand for? And so it really was this amazing genesis. And, and that's the only word I can think of to, hmm. of like the next part of Rebecca. Yeah. Well, you, you stole the answer to the question that I was about to ask. So I can <laughs> Wait, segue the question. Sorry. Exactly. The question was going to be, you know, would, would, would it be the same thing for you if you didn't have the success you had? Um, you know, it's a Red Bull produced film. It was, it was full length feature, which is phenomenal as opposed to often the super short, you know, five, 10, 15 minute videos that Red Bull does. This was smashing and award winning and, and tearjerker in every way. Um, what has the success of the movie allowed you to do or what opportunities have been opened up as a result of that, as opposed to purely doing the trip? I mean, could you have done the trip without the documentation? I I could, I I could have done the trip without the documentation. The reason I went to Red Bull with this idea is I knew I needed logistical and financial support to do it because going through three countries in a a trail that's purposely secretive, you know, through war-torn countries, like I needed help. So I didn't go to them with the idea of let's make a documentary. I went with them because I wanted to do the ride personally and I needed help. Um, It turned into obviously a really big story and a really big film. That wasn't the intention when we started. It was supposed to be a 20 minute short Hmm. little piece, but so much was being uncovered that they're like, we, we have to tell this story. It's too unbelievable not to tell. And for me, like, I don't, I watch the film and I don't think of, I don't see me in the film. I don't think about me. I think about what's the process that's been amazing by being forced to go on film tour, talk about the film, share it with people, you know, share tears and hugs with strangers. I'm a pretty private person. And that's one of the biggest things in my life that I've had to be in the public eye. I had to talk to people that I didn't know. I've had to tell a very personal, intimate story. And for me, what the film did with that is just show me the power of when humans connect and how important it is that we 
we do reach out to each other, whether it's through tell, telling a film story or a podcast or a book or writing in a journal or going to a bike race like Leadville where there's 1,200 people here that the human connection is so essential. And I don't often do that in my life. I'm, you know, if I have a dark time, I'm a bit of a loner and, and a lot of us will hole up and actually go inside instead of going outside. But having to share my most personal life story with a whole bunch of strangers um, mm -hmm. on film tour was physically and emotionally exhausting, but it also showed me the importance that we are all kind of the same and it is important that we do we do connect with each other, whether it's a stranger or or people that have shared the same experience. And that's what's really beautiful about the bike. It, it is such a vehicle for people, for healing, for transformation. Um, you know, the foundation that I founded in my dad's name, the Be Good Foundation, is all about using the bike mm -hmm. to, you know, help heal communities and people and individuals. And so, so yeah, the, the film made me come out of my shell, really. And in turn, I've gained this whole family of veterans and people, you know, basically a whole bunch of uncles from the Vietnam War <laughs> and families that I never knew I was connected to in that way. And, yeah. and also seeing how people really are using physical activity and bike and sharing and film and media um, to connect with each other on a personal level. Yep. Incredible. Well, this next question will relate to that <laughs> awesome response. We are, we are obviously here at Leadville. You've won it four times, I believe. That's correct. You you beat your own record the first three consecutive times you did it. That's correct. Um, <laughs> Twenty-four hour mountain bike world championships, record-setting Cocopelli trail race, Dirty Kanza four-time winner. I think so. So you're a crusher. Um, what sort <laughs> of you. feeling do you have <laughs> here now? I mean, is it? We are on the eve of, of Leadville. It kicks off tomorrow. I believe you'll not have a number on. But you're going to Breck the next day to go rip that up. What is it? Is it bittersweet? Is it super exciting to see the community? Is it great to see friends? Is it what sort of feelings do you have coming back? It feels like a family reunion. There's no other nice. way to put it. It's That's awesome. amazing to come back here and all these memories that are here and the same people, you know, Harrison looks the same and the, the course, you know, all these memories, but, but it is, yeah, it's like a fam big old family reunion coming home. And even though I'm not racing tomorrow, I have just as much excitement for, you know, people like Rose Grant who are going to go out and, and you and my friend Payson and I'm excited for them. Um, yeah. and I've done everything I want to do here on the race course. And I came back this time. It's the 10 year anniversary of my first win this year. And I came back because I wanted to, one, I wanted to celebrate that and support what's going on here. There's a women's panel that I wanted to be part of and really connect with the community in a different way and give back in a different way. And, and instead of actually paddling the course, kind of be supportive of the people who are, who are doing it. And yeah, come back to the family reunion. Nice. Well, that's what's great about the cycling community is it is, it is so much bigger. I mean, bike racing and being competitive is it's something that I'm sort of struggling with or trying to get my hands around is like people are excited to see podiums, whether you're on it or not, that's great. But the podium is going to live on and there'll be a time that I'm not winning, but you like, you want to be so much more of that community. So for example, at Rooted last week, I didn't race it. I rode it and it, it was the, one of the first times that I've done a gravel event and just embraced the spirit of gravel 
and I loved riding with people. I loved that that we called it rooted because we we're feeling rooted in this community. It's that communal feeling, which is so gosh darn special. So, people love podiums and they love watching people win and perform because it's inspiring to see somebody work that hard and try that hard. But as you saw in your bike event last weekend, you see those same stories of people having their own personal victories in the middle and the back of the pack. They just don't happen to be standing on top of a box. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty cool when you see that. And that's what people want to witness. They want to witness somebody going as hard as they can and like getting through it and getting through the dark time and then having their own kind of podium. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, I mean, it's what's really cool about a race like Leadville is Merrily stands at the finish line and puts the same medal around every single finisher's neck from the first to the last because they truly are a winner in, Mm -hmm. in their way. And there's, you know, coming from pro racing, you don't celebrate the people at the back of the pack or at uh-uh. the end, um, but there's there's so much winning still going on there, and it's that's what's cool about endurance mountain biking and and gravel and and these kind of sort of citizens races is that yeah you see your heroes up at the front killing it and and they're inspiring everybody else, but then you you see all those other stories that are just as awesome. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely wanted to celebrate that at Route of Vermont, and so we had a mullet protocol podium where it was voted upon by the riders, whoever, you know, went out of their way to do something super special, to be very giving. And and we had a full podium. There were a lot of votes coming in. It must have been hard to decide. Like, how, who decides it on was, the votes? Well, yeah, we went by by number of votes okay. and the impassioned responses that go along with them. It was great. It was a text along with a, a series of sentences, phrases, why this person exemplified that mullet protocol. Would you mind if I, if I implement a Be Good Award podium at Private Idaho and steal your idea? I, as long as you, you credit Credits. the greater gravel experience. Absolutely. I mean, we stole shark, what do you call it? Shark protocol? Yeah. I mean, that's outstanding. Safety, honesty, be wicked aggressive. What's the A? <laughs> Accountability. Accountability. Respectability. Responsible. And kind. have a killer time. Oh. Kind. And all those things. I mean, you can make up your own letters, but sure. yeah. But yeah, the mullet pro, I mean, that's awesome. I would love to, you know, I'd love to implement your idea at my event. I think it's really great to showcase what's going on in sure. the middle and the back and everywhere Totes. else. So, I mean, going back to the competitive side, how, how, what was your secret sauce? Why, how were you able to be so good for so long? Is it, do you have wicked good grit? Are you a, do you have the endurance machine of a, of a, of a locomotive? What well, is... I'll tell you this. I was never good at short events, you know, cause yeah. I, my physiology, you know, that's why I never did cross country racing or short track or any of that. Cause I just wasn't any good. I wasn't fast enough. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was better at long distance, even in high school, you know, I ran cross country and track and it was really obvious the longer it was, the better I did. Yeah. And that has, served me pretty well. Um, play to your strengths. Yeah. Play to your strengths. And mostly I just, I I don't know on paper. I don't have amazing power numbers, you know, through Red Bull performance camps and stuff. I'm just kind of okay. You know, my physiology, um, but I just try really hard and I don't quit. And so I think it's a little bit more of a mindset than it is really the, the power in my legs or how amazing I might be in the body. And I know they do some crazy prodding and testing at <laughs> Red Bull HQ. Do they have a tangibility of 
grit and determine uh not grit and determination but like the inability to quit because I think that was one of your strengths. You'd always talk about, yeah, people are going to roll out way faster than you at Leadville, but you're going to catch them every time. I was never in the lead any of my wins until like mile 40 or 50 or 60 sometimes. So. so can they test that? Have you ever been, like, have you had that tested? We did tested? do some really cool brain training testing. And I mean, that is the one secret to unlock. You know, you, there is so much science behind how to train, you know, the legs and the lungs. Um there's not a lot behind how to actually measure. So we've done some, you know, we did some some brain training where they were actually stimulating the part of your brain that, you know, your central governor, you know, trying to figure out does the brain or the body quit first. And we did these repetitive, you know, seven days of, of camp. Tim Johnson was in that camp too of... Um, doing, a retired Tim Johnson or a competitive Tim Johnson? Uh, it's hard to say. Okay. Um, no, he's still pretty competitive. He can still bang out some watts, but... He's and, very much retired. But they were honestly, they were they were testing you against yourself. So, you know, that guy can suffer pretty well. Absolutely. Um, and so they wanted to get athletes like Tim, myself, who who could suffer. Um, I felt badly for uh the BMX guy that they threw into that mix too. <laughs> suffer for like 30 <laughs> seconds. Wicked hard. Um, but they did this repetitive testing where they were doing uh uh some people were getting stimulated. Some people were not. We didn't know. Nobody knew except the head neurologist mm -hmm. who was actually getting the brain stimulation. Um, yeah. Endure. Endure. The book. Yeah. This is this is brought up in that book. Oh, they talk about it? Yeah. Oh, okay. It was really cool. Alex, somebody wrote it. Great yeah. book. Endure. Hutchinson, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was a very cool camp. And really what the, the big thing that I... And, one, they, they saw some something interesting in all of the athletes, uh, the endurance athletes, is that um, even when we were fatigued, um, extra fatigued, we were actually still able to somehow maintain... You did a leg press machine after you did these 4K things with the brain stimulation, and we were mm -hmm. still able to actually, in some cases, press harder and mm. do more. Um, even under fatigue, they didn't really figure out how you can train that. That's the next thing. How do you train it or how do you develop it? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the next helmet is going to be something that you're like pushing this button to turn off your central governor in your brain. Um, but the biggest thing I learned from the camp, the last, the last day, the last exercise we did was to race on a velodrome and race, um, uh, led light of our fastest time for the whole week. Mm -hmm. And so you race the light and you know, I was ahead of the light. I was all all happy. Then I fell behind the light and I was all bummed and kind of slacked off in the middle. And then I finished behind the light and I was all bummed. And of course it seems predictable, but the light was faster than, and so I did my fastest time on the last day, the most fatigued. But what I really learned is, is if I hadn't slacked in that middle and gotten bummed out at myself and yeah. kind of down on myself, yeah. the power of the mind, if you, if you really do believe that you're doing well, mm -hmm. um, how amazing that is. And, you know, that was a lot of my strategy at Leadville is like I was doing my own race and, you know, after a couple of times, I had so much confidence in the course. I'm like, I know the time I can do. I know the place I can do. If somebody really rides faster than me, then they're faster than me. Mm -hmm. And so the power of the mind is, is really unbelievable. And you see it with people who heal themselves in hospitals and you, I mean, but we don't yet know how to measure it or train it, right. which is the, that's the Holy grail really of performance. Which is also kind of sweet. There's something pure about that. Like to not have a meter to measure it or, I, a, or yeah. a stimulus to, to turn it on. 
Like I kind of hope we never do. Exactly. It's this je ne sais quoi that, that you either have it or you don't. You can turn well, it on. Well, the best can't. tools for training that are ancient mm-hmm. in visualization, meditation, you know, um, going on like a vision quest and or deprivation of like sleep and food and, mm-hmm. and kind of opening your mind. And those there's nothing new to that. But yet athletes are using those tools regularly um, as their sort of brain training tools. I've got the greatest segue, which is something I wanted to talk about anyway. But when you talk about deprivation, it makes me think of, I don't know, riding your bike in the way, 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 way northern hemisphere (laughs) in the middle of the winter. (laughs) I did a bike. I did a rod trail. Yes. Um, You texted me. I, you completed it. You won it. Um, it was probably, I don't know, a week later and I sent you a text. I was like, Hey, how was it? And you sent me this picture of you looking, um, I say this tastefully, you look exhausted. (laughs) You look on the potential verge of death. And the text says something to the effect of, well, this is a picture of me when it's negative 25 and I'm absolutely terrified because I've just woken up from a night that I thought I might die. Which is something that I can relate to because I did a similar trip, four day, no, four, a team of four, self-supported, eight day trip in northern Canada in early February. And the first night I thought to myself, oh my God, I might die. What did you think you were going to die of? Uh, hypothermia. Yeah. You were cold. <laughs> we were really cold the first night. Yeah. We pulled it together, but um, what I took away from it was that vin- vision quest of being... <laughs> testing limits that I didn't know I had and not to say we were doing anything extraordinary just the ability to survive in such hostile climate was eye-opening and something that I've been able to take with me in the past few months since then I don't feel like there's been a ton of press about that race and I I think there's that's one of the coolest races out there or pure events like Talk to me about the I did a bike. I did a I, rod. I did rod trail invitational. That's is, what it's called. Yeah, what it's called. Um, what is I did a bike? Why am I making that up? It used to be. Um, it used to be called that. You know, a long time ago. Okay. Well, it's um, not called that but anymore, now folks. It's, it's called the I did a rod trail invitational, and it, it it takes the path of the the historic I did a rod trail, which is fascinating, and the dog the dog race still goes on the dog sled race, um, so it's on the same same trail, um, in the middle of winter in Alaska mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you, you know, nobody's going to come pick you up. Really. You, you really are, um, very, I mean, there's a few gear drops. You, you drop in a little five pound, you send, you ship your food ahead of time, a couple weeks ahead of time. And it gets dropped at these remote cabins in the middle of Alaska. And honestly, it's one of the, it's the most committing thing I've done in, in more than 10 years. Um, Riverboarding the Grand Canyon is is on par with with riding the I did Rod Trail Invitational because you know I've I've done a lot of bike racing and things that are hard and they hurt and you're sleepy and you're tired um, but there's very few expeditions I've done where <clears throat> the commitment level is so high where the risk factor of of messing up doesn't just mean you might not podium it means you might lose digits or drown or um, or not come back. And not that I, I, I don't go do these events to risk my life, but I, I did realize after going and doing that, I did a red trail invitational, I was missing that kind of commitment and that kind of, um, 
you know, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail was like that too. You know, we're machete through the jungle. And I mean, I, I love racing my bike and I love going fast, but I had missed the adventure in my life. And what's really kind of cool is that my adventure racing and some of that stuff is now, um, it's coming full circle and it's, it's, sort of morphing with my bike racing career and into a lot of these, you know, what people are calling bike packing and bike expeditions, because, you know, the, the map and compass, the commitment, the, the packing, the logistics that have to happen. There's a lot more that have to happen than just how many Watts you can crush out, you know, into your pedals. And the, yeah, the I did ride trail invitational. It, it, very much played on all my weaknesses is, which I hate being sleepy and I hate being cold. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> And I was really afraid that I didn't think I could survive in that kind of terrain. And and I took way too much stuff. I was scared. Um, but I also realized, you know, it's one of my core values, risk equals reward. And I hadn't, I'd been neglecting that one for a while because I'd been working on the other four. And um, and I, I realized I really do like the kinds of things that make my hands sweat, that make me nervous where I, and the planning, the intense planning that I was doing for that trip, that made me realize that, it was exactly the trip I needed to do because it wasn't just like, oh, throw your stuff in, you know, throw the garment on the bike and go. It was, I was pouring over, you know, talking to explorers who'd been to Alaska and talking to friends of mine who'd done it and really pouring over the gear. And, and that kind of commitment was a message to me that I'm, it must be something that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be going back. That's the first question everybody asks is, are you going back? Right. I said, are you doing the thousand? You're like, do you remember what you I, said? I, I well, I don't remember what I said, but I know what I want to do. My plan is to go back and do the 350 better because yep. I I finished the 350 and I achieved my goal of surviving. Yeah. Um, but it was messy. It was really messy, and so I want to tighten up my gear and my systems, and I have the confidence now that I can survive in that terrain. So I'll do the 350 one more year, and then with the goal um, the following year to try the full 1,000, which is three weeks, you know, it's- or longer. <laughs> Absolutely wild. Yeah. I mean, I was literally howling at the wolves at night. I was <laughs> alone with just seeing wolf prints, you know, riding my bike across ice that's cracking underneath my tires. And and I made it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's otherworldly. Uh, I just got back from a gravel race in Iceland, and that was otherworldly, nice. just the landscape. But being in those inhospitable conditions... It's like, may as well be on the moon while (laughs) riding through snow or Alaska. (laughs) So you just mentioned it, uh, this, this bike packing thing. You have shared a chuckle with me, these roadies coming to gravel and seeing bike packing and thinking that this is this cool new thing when in fact it's been going on for ages. Um, I love that people are adventuring on their bike and it's easy to make fun of someone like you who's worn skin suits a lot and wouldn't carry like one ounce, you know, of anything extra. And now you're loading up your bike with all this gear so you can go adventuring. I actually think it's, it's pretty cool that people are exploring and finding ways to, to venture out into the world. Well, thank you. Uh, bike packing is sweet. Do you have a skin suit on underneath though? All your oh, bike absolutely. Packing yeah. Stuff? You gotta have a good chamois to go with, <laughs> to go with it all. So... You and I have shared a whole handful of conversations. We probably talk quarterly about it. Future of gravel, what's happening with gravel. And, you know, my experience is shorter than yours. 
in my time, in the past three and a half years, there's been an evolution of sorts. I mean, the sport of cycling is always going to be fluid. Things will always be changing. Mm-hmm. More roadies are coming over. Traditional road racing is dying. Um, is it causal? Is it because road racing is dying? That's what roadies are looking to do. Is it roadies have wanted to do this thing and they just haven't had it on their schedule, but in this vacant period of their race schedule, they're able to. Do you have a magical ball where you can see what the future is in the next few years? Mm. Or do you have a preference with that ball? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a magical ball, but I, I can tell you, I don't think it's just roadies wanting to come to gravel. I think it's it's our, it's humanity in general and people want to get off the beaten path. People want to unplug. I mean, our digital world, we are so connected and so plugged in. And I think people are venturing to gravel. They're venturing to bike packing. They're ven- venturing to a little more adventure riding really because they, they personally want to unplug mm-hmm. and, um, road riders in general, you know, our world is, is busy and full of cars and people are also, you know, not wanting to ride, ride their bikes and risk their lives. And so I think, I think it's, Really, though, that people want to escape a little bit. And you're seeing people buy vans and go live in vans now. And I mean, it's, I think it's, they're all in response to people just really wanting to find a way to check out and spend time in nature and uh, have a bit of nature therapy. Um, yes, there's still racing going on in gravel and it's fun and it's really fun to push yourself. My, I don't have a crystal ball, but my hope is that as people, you know, and I'm, I'm not just going to point the finger at, at roadies, but as people come into the world of gravel and what they're finding exciting about it, which is that people are laid back, it's fun, it's cool, um, it's not so stressful, everybody's having a, a great party at the end. I hope that people don't bring what they didn't like, wherever they came from, and wherever they're leaving that venue and coming over to gravel or bikepacking or adventure riding is join the party that's there but don't bring the baggage that you didn't like from the the place you came from. You know, it's like if you're a, moving from a city to the country, you know, you don't expect to find, you know, all the same, uh, the same access to things that you had in a city, like five billion restaurants and a Kmart and a whatever else. If you're moving to the country, you you can't bring that stuff with you. Mm-hmm. You you accept that there's one grocery store and there's this and the cell phone coverage isn't so great. And that's and part of the beauty awesome. of it. Exactly. And so yeah. don't so that's my hope for for gravel is is that people don't try to change what is what is beautiful and special about it. Mm-hmm. That's outstanding. I wonder I wonder about that fluidity, meaning inevitably something will change. It's maybe, you know, it's the front getting a little more uh, pointed or world toury or whatever it is. Um, but things need to stay fresh. You can't be doing the same exact thing for year in and year out. So, for example, RPI, your event, you've introduced a stage race. What's that? This is going to be year three, four? Third year of the stage race. Yeah. Second official year. The first year was kind of a test run. And I mean, you make a really good point is that, that, you know, we all evolve, you know, I don't do the same kind of racing I did, you know, 
I'm not doing 24 hour solo racing anymore. You know, then I evolved to hundred mile racing and races like Leadville. And now I'm evolving into bikepacking. And I, I do think it's important that one individuals sort of evolve and develop with what's inspiring for them in the moment. But, but yeah, events, events evolve too. And so, yeah, I do try to add some different things into the mix. So private eyed, oh, we've added shorter and longer. You know, we have a 20-mile tater tot. Um, Great name. And then, <laughs> you know, and I've got plans to have have a longer part of the one day and really try to to have something for everybody. And, you know, Dirty Kansas did it with the XL, the 350. And mm-hmm. to me, that appealed to me and more my style of what the kind of riding I was doing. You know, I did the 100 or 200 a bunch of times. And then the 350 was appealing to me. So I think offering a menu is nice for people if possible. Yeah. And ultimately people have the choice. If they want to go to a really intense um, race atmosphere or, or that, you can choose an event for that. If you want to go to something like your event that is, that is a little bit of both, but also probably more on the, the mullet side than that, probably more <laughs> on the long hair side than the short hair side. and Party at the back. Yeah. Um, so people have choices. And as an event director, you can you can make the event what you want to make it and you can have it be the culture that you want it to be. And so, you know, I just try to do what I think is cool for my event and what would be fun for me. Mm-hmm. I'm still a racer and an athlete and I love to try hard in that way, but then I want to, you know, hang out with my tribe in a really cool place and look at beautiful mountains afterwards and play beer drinking games. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> well, you got a great venue for it. You have a fantastic weekend, Labor Day weekend. Um, and to your point, I think the strong ones will survive and we're, we're lucky in this era right now that there are so many really, really fun gravel events that we honestly have more on the calendar that we can even all fit in. So it's a, it's a good time for cycling and shoot. I mean, I think we're going to look back in 10 years and be like, wow, that was interesting for reasons X, Y, and Z. So we're on the cutting edge of it all. Booyah. Welcome to the future (laughs) friends. Now. Given that this is interview 2.0 and not wanting to take all your time, I'd like to wrap up with three questions. Okay. Number one, I'm going to ask them first, and then you're going to answer them after I've asked all three. Okay, there's rules. There's a lot of rules Rules. in this podcast. I'm a roadie. you got to keep it within the the lines. One, what's your favorite place to ride a bike? Two, what is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden, which I'm really interested in because you've ridden your bike everywhere? And three, living or otherwise, who would you like to go for a bike ride with? With whom would you like to go for a bike ride? Mm. Uh, Number one, my favorite place to ride is Idaho, my hometown, where I live. It's why I live there. (laughs) It's pretty special. Um, Two, a place I'd like to ride that I haven't, Bhutan. For the geographically challenged, where's Bhutan? Say, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna guess Look it's it up, somewhere Ted. in East Asia. Again, yeah. Got the right. Can I get the right continent? Yeah. Is it yeah. an island? No. As you. So Tell me more about Bhutan and why you want to ride there. Um, fire up the internet. Well, they have a they have a gross national happiness quota there, and um, you know it's it's sort of a, a Buddhist uh, type country. It's very small, very small country. Um, their their king is a cyclist. You're kidding. And it's a mountain. It's mountain terrain. Beautiful mountain terrain that is a very small country that celebrates happiness. So sounds like a good place to ride to bike. Super high, Bhutan. High elevation. 
folks, B-H-U-T-A-N, not B-U-T-A-N, is a Buddhist kingdom in the Himalayas, East Ridge. It is known for its monasteries and fortresses and dramatic landscapes that range from subtropical plains to steep mountains and valleys in the high Himalayas, peaks such as 7,326-meter Jama Lahari are popular trekking destinations. Wow. That sounds sweet. Sounds a cool place, huh? Is it safe? Yeah. I guess, well, the happiness quota. And I, I asked if it's safe because I have a very good friend, Farid Nouri, who is from Afghanistan, who is starting mountain bike Afghanistan. And the riding and terrain there looks so spectacular. We started putting together the idea of going there for an event, and it came at a time that the Taliban was not welcoming cyclists, believe it or not. So that was a shame, but... That looks amazing. Buddhist cultures in general are, are you know, the people, you know, Laos is the same. I go back to Laos every year um, and they're generally places that uh, people are kind and welcoming and uh, it's sort of a little something that could all rub off on all of us. That's sweet. Um, and then third, who I would like to ride a bicycle with. Oh, there's, there's quite a few people. Um, I'd like to ride a bike with Michelle Obama. Ooh, great one. Yeah. That would be fun. Michelle, if you're listening. I know I she skis. She brings her family to Sun Valley every once in a while, and uh, they've been there, and I've always kind of been a little bit of that stalker, just <laughs> like, hey, if you want to ride a bike. <laughs> I got some fat bikes. It's winter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that'd be pretty fascinating. All right. Last question. Oh, and Ted King. Of course I want to ride a bike with Ted King. You can do that anytime. <laughs> well, our schedules don't match up all that often, but... It'll work. What is what is inscribed on your arm? Oh, um, inscribed on my arm is a it's map coordinates of the tree um, near the village of Taoi in Laos, where I found my dad, um, and it's written in not in uh, um, American numbers. It's written in the Lao language. Um, or Lao numbering system. So it's a reminder of the place where one where I found my dad, but also found a really missing part of myself. Which you all understand when you watch Blood Road. So make that a priority as soon as you hit stop. Do you have any tattoos? I do not. Yeah. I, I don't have any either in this. I, you know, this just kind of. There's a lot of scars. Yeah. Those you have like some, tattoos. actually some tattoos I can see yeah. right now on your knees. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, I really appreciate the time. Thank, Thank you. you for your insight and and being the blueprint of this craziness. So now call. you know where your career's going. You're <laughs> going to develop your core values exactly. and write it all down. Oh and my gosh. Um, I look forward to uh, hearing what what yours are when you figure that out. Give me another decade or two. Figure out where you're going. What are the handrails? Is that what I'm looking for? You're looking for your navigational handrails. Okay. Yeah. Noted. I love maps. They're some Great. of my favorite things. So far out. Thanks, King. Thank you so much. <laughs> Be good. Hey folks, I really hope you enjoyed that. I have a really good time hanging out with Rebecca. She likes to razz me. She likes to give me a hard time for being a roadie. She likes to give me noogies and act as though she's my older sister. Rebecca though is a rock star. And just as she asked me in Texas in 2016, what am I doing with my life? She asked me at the end of this conversation, why am I doing this podcast? Folks, this episode is episode number 40 of King of the Ride. I explained to Rebecca that amid this very busy time of my life, I'm lucky enough to travel to so many unique places, participate in so many cool events, and best yet interact with so many interesting and unique people where the thread of the bicycle is woven in their lives. 
from award-winning chefs to entrepreneurs to VPs of the world's biggest companies to professional cyclists, event directors. We are 40 episodes in, just over one year into the existence of this project, and I'm thrilled with what we have going on at King of the Ride. I thank you for listening. I appreciate our guests for taking time out of their busy lives to share their stories, provide the riveting anecdotes that make, honestly, that make this planet an interesting place. So if you enjoy this conversation, if you enjoy this show, I encourage you to take just 10 seconds right now and leave a quick five-star review. Be sure to hit subscribe, tell your friends and fam to check out this podcast. That is it for me. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be sure to enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride.